So uh, Gary asked me to stand up here and, and share a little bit about Revolution Church, which for those of you who know me makes me nervous because I'm not a public speaker. So I, I, I took notes. Hold on. Or I could do this. I prefer this because, you know, y'all can't see me, but, you know, whatever. <clears throat> so, Revolution Church means so much to me and my family, and we have the smartest pastor in the world. Uh, <laughs> no, but seriously. Um, so Revolution means a lot to me and my family. To kind of keep it brief, hopefully. Uh, there was a period in my life where I kind of... I've been thinking about how to explain this. I didn't really turn my back on God, but there was a period where... See, I, saying I walked away from the faith is not correct because I'd never stopped believing God exists, but I, I looked at it from a perspective of, okay, he's doing his thing, I'm going to go over here and do my thing, and we have a mutual understanding. That didn't work out too well. <laughs> um, no, but that persisted through being a teenager all the way up until five years? About five years ago. So um, Ashley, Ashley found Revolution Church first, and uh, she started attending, and, you know, me being the, the proud man that I am, I stayed home and did, you know, computer games. <laughs> uh, but no, eventually, um, you know, she won. There was a rolling pin involved and bruising into my head and she drugged me to church. And uh, after hearing Pastor Gary talk and meeting, you know, the whole church family and, and seeing what the real body of Christ was about and, and what true Christianity was about, it, it really, it really changed my life. And, uh, very, very glad for you and for the whole church family here. It's, it's life-changing. It really is. So, without further ado, um, Scripture. Genesis, oh, let's see. Y'all can't see me. So I'll mute this. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, good, good. Got your back, Lauren. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, that they, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking, it's like, what does the voice of God sound like? Uh, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Okay. (laughs) The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. those relationships and it doesn't happen and we keep moving from one to another one to another this will be the fix this will be the fix and the way that God has designed it under the curse which is what we just read about is that none of those should bring you full satisfaction all of them will give you glimpses of satisfaction here and there you know the joy of holding a baby and having it giggle and laugh the the embrace of of your of your spouse the satisfaction of a a job well done at work you'll get glimpses of them here and there but none of them are meant to give you that 
longing satisfaction that you desire for ultimately. And what they're supposed to do is help you to long for what's going to be happening in eternity. And so if this life is not what you want it to be, that's why. (laughs) Because he wants you to find it in himself. In the military, they have a term when, when one soldier gets wounded. Anybody know what it's called? Man down, okay, man down. If someone you know, gets wounded, they let everybody else know man down. That's why there might be one or two that go to attend to him because we don't leave a man behind. And really what we have here in the Garden of Eden is man down. You had Adam walking with fellowship with God, and then sin came in and brought man down. And the curse, more importantly, is what brought him down. And so the presence of God was forfeited. Prior to that, they had communication in the, in the physical presence of God as he walked with them in the garden. But they, all that was out the door because of their sin and the curse that was brought upon them. Paradise, the perfect environment, was lost. Uh, the perfect marriage crashed. The, the potential for a perfect family was sunk. In fact, you see, the very first son born to Adam kills his other son. Can you just imagine the grief, and many of you have, of losing a child. Can you imagine the compounded grief of one of your other children is the one that took the life of that child? That's like a one in a billion story right there. I mean, it happens, but it's not that common. And yet here we are, the very first family is totally messed up and totally in pain and heartache. In fact, the more you read the Old Testament, you need to look at it through a different set of eyes. Is that you keep looking for heroes. Like, I want to be like David and kill the Goliath. I want to be like, you know, Joshua and conquer the city. And what you'll see is all these leaders really mess it up. And when they are victorious, it's only because they're totally dependent upon God, which is what this morning is really about. Um, and then the perfect job that they had. They, work is not part of the curse. Work was cursed because of sin. So this morning, instead of man down, we're going to talk about how man up. And how we as fathers and men can man up. But don't, ladies, don't think that oh, you're exempt from listening this morning because every principle in here will apply to you as well. But in a more specific way, we're going to be talking to dads and men in the room. So we're going to talk about God's wisdom that it'll take to reverse the curse. What it takes to reverse the curse. The first thing is to defend your family. To defend your family. That's what we as men are called to do. It, so here we see this, the serpent is very crafty. Your transla- old translation might say subtle, which is a good translation also. It's, it's a Hebrew word that implies he knew his way around how to manipulate things. And he says to the woman, did God actually say? Whenever you hear people beginning to say, well, does the Bible really mean this? Is the Bible really dependent upon that? And so on and so forth. That's when Satan is creeping in. The very thing he will get you to do at the beginning is to tell you you really can't trust God's Word. You really can't depend on the Bible. Many of our younger people are going to go off to college. Some may go off to Christian colleges, but some may go off to state schools. And they're going to hear their freshman year, they're going to be bombarded with the Bible is not true. The Bible is full of myths and legends. The Bible is not historically or scientifically accurate, on and on and on and on. And they're going to do their best to do what Satan did to Eve, and that's to get her to doubt the Word of God. An interesting study was done recently. There was a lot of evangelical churches who believed the gospel but started doubting whether 
parts of the Bible were actually true, and they actually believed that, hey, you can actually believe the gospel, believe in being born again and being saved, but you don't have to believe all the Bible is true. Almost every single one of those churches, one generation later, did not believe the gospel. Well, go figure. The gospel is based on the word of God being true. And if you don't think that Jesus, if you don't think the Bible teaches a literal Adam and Eve, your problem is not with science. Your problem is with Jesus. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve. He quoted it several times if they were real, actual people. Somebody's phone's up here. <laughs> anyway, um, that, that they believed, Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were an actual, literal person, not just a, 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 uh, a type of, well, Adam represents all of humanity, and Eve represents all the, all the women in the world and all that stuff, and they're just figures. No, Jesus quoted them as if they're actual people. And that's why it also says in this passage that Eve, Adam called her Eve because she was the mother of all human beings. She was the first, first female on the earth. She wasn't just a representation of females on the planet. So what you think of God's word is going to give you the equipment to defend your family. And here, this is going on, and she took of the fruit and she ate, and then she gave to her husband who was with her. Many times you'll see pictures of the serpent tempting Eve, and it's just the two of them in the garden. But this verse right here says, Adam's standing there the whole time, and the dude does not even step up to defend his wife. He lets the whole thing happen because he also is probably being deceived. He lacks courage. Whatever it may be, husbands, your job is to defend your wife. Your, your job is to defend your, your kids. Your job is to defend your family. And let me tell you, the family is under attack today like never before. We've been saying that for generations. We thought that, you know, we were really under attack. Man, we went from water pistols to nuclear war. The, the, the family is incredibly under attack. And the biggest factor in the family that's under attack is the man in the family. We are being told by this generation, you don't need men. Two women can adopt kids. Don't matter. You don't have to. And nobody has to be the father. Let's just all be parents. In fact, you're talking about this whole thing about group parenting. There's even websites now where it used to be if you had a child out of wedlock, that was something that was unplanned. Now people are planning and they're hooking up with people on website. Hey, who wants to make a baby together? Let's make a baby together and co-parent and purposely live in separate homes and send the kid back and forth. Why would you ever want to do that? If you've ever been through a divorce, you know what a nightmare that is. Why would anybody choose that? Okay? And that's why if you unfortunately have been divorced like I have, okay, if you're a single mom like many are, you know, you know that you need help. You know that you need a church family to help step up and do that because the family is under attack, especially the men. We're being told that we don't matter, that we are, it's patriarchal, that's the old way of doing things. And what they're attacking is not American civilization. They're attacking the Bible. This is the way God set it up. If you have a, tr a trouble with a man being the head of the home and, and, and raising his children and being a two-parent family, then you have a problem with God's design, not the American dream. So the attack on fathers is, is really prevalent in our society. Uh, and, and you're seeing the results of it. Of students in grades 1 through 12, 39% live in homes absent of their biological father. And that's a 19-year-old stat. That, that number has actually gotten dramatically worse than that. Look at the trend. In 1960, only 8% of kids had a mother only in the home. And now look at how the numbers are continuing to decrease and the trend. 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. Undeniable stat. Why would anybody choose to single parent? I understand if you're a single parent, that's a tough job. 
and we pray for you. you. And it's not, in many cases, it's not your fault. But why would someone choose that if, if this is the what it produces? 70% of youth that are in housed state-operated correctional facilities, which including drug rehab and all kinds of other operated facilities, come from fatherless homes. Children without a father are four times more likely to live in poverty than families with a father. Children from fatherless homes are twice as likely to drop out of school before graduating than their, than their children who have fathers in the home. Teen girls from fatherless homes are four times more likely to become a mother before the age of 20. Children who live in a single-parent home are two times more likely to commit suicide than other children in two-parent homes. 90% of the youth in the United States who decide to run away from home or become homeless for any reason originally come from a father's home. Do you see what it's doing to America? Do you see what it's doing to our world? It's because Satan is attacking fathers. He wants them out of the home. And our United States government is guilty of subsidizing this behavior. We basically tell moms, don't marry the dad. We'll give you more money if you don't marry the dad. And we're subsidizing it and, and, and encouraging single parenthood and it's destroying our culture. So the first point is you need to defend your family from the attacks. The, the media is attacking your family. The culture is attacking your family. All of this, Satan is attacking. You need to stand up and man up and, and be the defender. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see how Satan attacks the family. You tell me. What are some ways that Satan attacks dads and Satan attacks families. You tell me. Go ahead. Yeah. Pornography, right? Uh, divorce, affairs, workaholism. All these are things that are enemies of dads and other families. So we know what's going on. We're not ignorant, but somehow, here's the problem. The, the problem with all sin is pride. We think we're the exception. We think we can dabble in these things or that they won't hurt us, but you need to be aware because your family can be destroyed before you know it. So you need to defend your family and you need to walk with the Lord in order to do so. Number two, you need to take responsibility. Take responsibility. God asks a very simple question. The question is, who told you? Who told you? Does Adam ever answer the question? He says, well, the woman you gave me, she, she gave me to... She, whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He didn't ask, why did you eat the, the fruit? He said, who told you? He wanted to get to the heart of the matter. How did you find all this information out? And he totally misses the subject. He doesn't take responsibility. He blames shifts. He blames two people. He blames Eve. But he also says, this is the woman that you gave me. Do you ever blame God for things that go wrong in your life? It, it's a human instinct. We tend to do it. But by implication, we're saying God doesn't know what he's doing. In other words, I would have been better off if I had not been married. Really. You, you, you would rather blame God than to take responsibility for what just happened in this garden where you did not defend your wife and you did not defend the truth of the word of God. <clears throat> So when we take responsibility, you have to realize that your kids, dads, spiritual development is your job. Bringing them to church for an hour and a half every Sunday is not going to cut it. Okay, Think about that. 
if, if they're under the sound of my voice or if they're in there getting from a, 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 um, a lesson from Heather Patterson or Heather Munoz or Tammy Milborn or Rick Patterson or any of the people teaching in there, you think that that can compete with what they're going to get all week long in school, what they're going to get all week long on social media and on movies and all that the world and from their friends? You think that's actually going to compete? You need to be reading the Bible with your kids. You need to be praying with your kids. You need to be talking about what God is doing in your family. You need to be talking about these things and having these conversations. And you need to be intentional about it. You need to be the man who defends his family because you, the, when, when you stand before God someday and he, sa- and he is going to judge how your kids turned out spiritually, he's not going to blame me. He's going to look at you and say, what did you do? Well, Gary didn't teach enough. Gary didn't do this, whatever. It's not my job to raise your kids. My job is to feed the flock of God so that you can feed the sheep and the lambs and you can take the gospel to them. It's your responsibility. Number two, you need to let your kids know that you're both sinners in need of grace. I'm reading a book right now by uh, Paul David Tripp. I strongly, strongly recommend it. And it's talking about, it's just called parenting. And it talks about how the gospel changes the way you parent. That if you say to your kids, why did you do that? I didn't do that when I was a kid. What you're saying is, you're a sinner and I am not. But what we should be saying is, hey, you shouldn't do that. When I was a kid, I messed up in that way too. And, and it didn't turn out well for me. And I want to protect you from that because we're both sinners, you and me both, and we both need Jesus. So let's not do those things. And let's pray for God's help not to do those things. And you see a grace-filled parenting rather than a judgmental type of parenting. But you need to let your kids know that you fail. And, it, and in fact, that's my next point here. Apologize to your kids when you do. If you've been a not-so-great dad up until this point, I would say there's a conversation in order this afternoon where you apologize for not being the dad you should be. You can say, well, man, if I'd say that, they're going to really jump in on me. Great. Let them. You need to apologize. Even if your kids are adult kids, I would have this conversation if you have not uh, been the dad you ought to be. And you need to say, hey, but from here on, I'm going to do what I can. And I'm going to try to be the godly father that God has asked me to be. Number three, you need to get it man up by getting into the word. Man up by getting into the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture, how much? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. The first one is teaching. And it's not talking about the verb of teaching or the gerund, I should say, of teaching. It's talking about an announced form of the doctrine. In fact, some translations say for doctrine. The teaching is teaching about God or doctrine. This is what we know about God and God's truth. And so one of the best things you can do as a believer is know more and more about God. Okay, I know that sounds kind of obvious, but many times we read the Bible like it's a self-help book. I'm going to flip until I find a verse that encourages me or speaks to my problem. No, what you need to do is speak to the one who knows your problems. The more you know about Jesus, the more you know about his compassion, about his love, about his holiness, the more it transforms you to deal with your problems. So don't read the book like some devotional book every time where you're just looking for a verse that really spoke to me this morning. Read the verses that speak to you about how marvelous Jesus is and how marvelous a Savior he is and let him transform your life. So when we get right doctrine into our minds, it reproves us. It tells us, hey, here's what's wrong with you. Here's where you're lazy. Here's where you're lustful. 
Here's where you're inconsistent. Here's where you need to be better to your wife or better to your kids or do better on the job or whatever it may be. When you know more about Jesus, the more you get reproved by the Bible, and it tells you what's wrong with you. It's like looking in a mirror, right? Isn't that what James tells us? We're looking at the man in the mirror, and we're seeing what's wrong, but we don't need to be forgetful here. We need to change, and that's what the next thing is, correction. It not only tells you what's wrong with Gary, but here's how you can fix what's wrong with, with the man. And it, it doesn't just point out, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, but it says, here's what you can do, and then it trains you in righteousness. In other words, here's what Jesus is like, Here's how you're not like him. Here's how you can fix that problem. And here's how we're going to train you to be more like Jesus. You see the cycle there in the scripture? And it goes on to say, Hold on, I messed it. There we go, right there. It says in verse 17, the result, that the man of God, everybody say man of God. Man of God. That's what every dad wants to be or should want to be, the man of God. It may be that you may be complete. Equipped for every good work. The reason you're not being the husband you should be is because you're incomplete. The reason you haven't been the dad you know you should be is because you're incomplete. And the reason you're incomplete is because you're not spending enough time in the Word. The more we spend time in the Word, the more it completes us to be the, the father, the man, and the husband that we know that we should be. Number four, we need to provide discipline. We need to provide discipline. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to what? Discipline him. And we live in a day where it's like, uh, man, you just set your sister's hair on fire. Time out. Time out. Like, really time out for that? I know that there's a time for time out, okay? But there's also time to, for a whoop on the bottom, okay? I am not talking about child abuse, okay? You know that I'm not, but people go so far the other way. We have Christian parents today who say, well, I don't spank my kids. I'm like, well, then you don't do what the Bible says. The Bible talks about a rod of discipline, which is really what grandma used to call a switch. And you need to use something where it's not abusive. I prefer something rather than your hand. But you need to do something. And good guideline is uh, one swat for every year old they are. Man, a one-year-old doesn't need this. Man, if you're doing that, I think that's abuse for a one-year-old, okay? I think one, one, one and make it count. And look them in the eye in love and say, you're not going to do that. You will not talk to your mom like that. And then you give them a big hug and you love on them. And then you teach them that for every year older, there's more responsibility and there's more consequences for it. Now, that doesn't mean that when they're 19, you give them 19 swats, okay? There obviously is a point of diminishing return to where now you have to hit them where it hurts by taking away their electronic devices, their cell phones, their privileges, things like that. But when they're young, they need to know what pain is because sin causes pain. And what you're doing is you're giving, what is a vaccination? It is a small dose of what makes you sick so your body can build up immunity to fight the bigger issue, the bigger viruses. And so when you discipline your kid, when you swat them, you're giving them a small dose of pain that sin causes. Because I guarantee you this is nowhere near as painful as divorce. If you can teach them to deny themselves when they're three or four and to behave themselves when they're five and six, you will keep them out of jail, out of divorce, and out of all kinds of other things. Hey, guys, shh, kind of distracting. Okay, you need to keep them where they feel a little bit of pain so they don't experience greater pain later. When you don't do those things, you're causing them to suffer much, much more later. So, and also... Especially if you're divorced or you failed as a dad, don't let guilt determine how you're going to parent. 
A lot of times people don't want to parent the way they should and be firm because they know how bad they messed up. Or they feel guilty because dad isn't in the house or mom isn't in the house or we've gone our separate ways. And they feel guilty so they don't come down on hard on their kids like they should and they're not firm enough. Don't let guilt do that to you. Okay? You need to be the parent you should have been even if circumstances weren't perfect in all those, all those situations. Number five, uh, you need to make sacrifices. Every dad needs to make sacrifices for his families. 1 John 4.14 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We often think about Jesus suffering for our sins. But I wonder how much more, or at least as much, the Father suffered. Every dad has probably said these words. This is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. I wonder how much eternal pain the father also suffered having to send his son and having to turn his back on his son. I believe that the whole Trinity suffered for my sins. I believe that they, because the Bible talks about you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You don't think the Holy Spirit was grieved to watch the Holy Son of God be punished for our sins? You don't think the father's heart was broken to see, to experience separation from his son and to watch his son endure all that for us? It's amazing what the Father went through to, to, for our sins. And so there's things you're going to do without. You, you're you're going to sacrifice a lot of time for your kids, even for your adult kids. There's going to be things that you want to do that you're going to have to say no to. That maybe the fishing trip or the golfing trip or whatever time you want to spend, you may have to sacrifice that to spend time with your kids. President Dwight Eisenhower uh, scheduled a son, uh, son and father fishing trip. And they went out fishing, and uh, it rained almost all day, and they didn't catch a thing. And President Eisenhower kept a presidential journal, which was also his personal journal, and he wrote in his journal that day, went fishing with David Jr., what a waste of time, rained all day, caught nothing. David wrote in his own journal, went fishing with my dad today, greatest day of my life. You, we, sometimes we are looking for results as dads, but really what our kids are looking for is time. When we say we're too busy, every time we say that, we are robbing from our kids what they need to be secure in Jesus Christ, to know that not only does their earthly father love them, their heavenly father loves them. Aren't you glad your heavenly father doesn't say, I don't have time? We need to invest time in our kids. And then there's several other things. We need to sacrifice possessions. Maybe you don't get that boat you're wanting. <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't go... You know, you don't have that membership at the golf course. Maybe there's a lot of things you just have to sacrifice that you will never experience on this earth so that your kids can experience what's in the life to come. You need to sacrifice possessions. There may be career advancements that you have to sacrifice. Or maybe a whole career itself. You say, you know what, I can't do this job anymore. I'm going to have to quit and find something else because I'm too long away from home. And I need to spend more time at home with my wife and kids. And maybe you take a major cut in pay to make that investment in your kids. I truly believe God would honor that. You have to sacrifice a lot of leisure time, especially in retirement years, whatever it may be, and you even sacrifice a lot of health. What's one of the major contributors to heart attacks in men? Stress. What's one of the major contributors to stress? Kids. <laughs> so you, you will actually, in fact, you, I've, how many times have we seen guys who, when they're single, man, they're all buff and swole and whatever, and then they have kids, and then they get a gut, and they get all these things. And it's not just because they just eat too many, they go to too many birthday parties eating birthday cake. 
It's just because they're so worn out, exercise and the time to exercise becomes a fraction of availability and it gets very, very difficult. So we, all these things, we have to make sacrifice. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that you may feel that the Holy Spirit of God is asking you to sacrifice? What on that list might be something you think, you know, I've been kind of selfish when it comes to that. You know, Jesus manned up for us. He did all those things. He, and he definitely made sacrifice for us. Hebrews 12, 2. Fathers, you want an example to look to on how to be a dad and how to make sacrifice and how to love? You looked at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Wow. You talk about manning up. He knew all that the cross was going to involve. He knew about the beatings, the punches in the face, the ripping out of the beard, the nails in the hands and the feet, the public humiliation. He saw all that coming, and he looked past it, and he saw a joy, the joy of knowing that we would be redeemed people, and he would bring his children home. That was his motivation. John says in, in 3 John, I have no greater joy but to knowing my children walk in the truth. You know what? I don't like pain. I don't like root canals. I don't like all these things like that. But I will go through anything if it means my kids will walk in the truth and live for Jesus. And that's the kind of sacrifices we need to make as dads for our families. It says despising the shame. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. You look to him as your example, and then just consider him. Just think about that. When you feel like you're not the dad you should be, you're not living as a husband you should be, just consider Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Being a dad can be tiresome. Being a dad can make you feel weary and, and faint-hearted. But keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't keep your eyes on your pastor or on your church or on your dad or anybody else. All of us will fail you some way, somehow. But Jesus never will. He will give you the strength to be the father you should be. He'll give you the example to be the father you should be. But Jesus didn't just do this so we could be great dads. He did this because we're sinners. That we have sinned against our heavenly father. We have shaken our fist in his face and said, you're not going to run my life. I'm going to run my own life. And we've rebelled against him. That's not working out, is it? And because of our rebellion against our Heavenly Father, we deserve to be punished for all eternity and be separated from Him. But Jesus died to bridge that gap. He died so that we could be saved from our sins and from the punishment of our sins. He took all your sins upon His own body and went through hell on the cross for us so that we could be reunited with our Heavenly Father. I want to ask you this morning, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This is the time in the service where I ask God's people to pray because I believe God answers these kind of prayers where he opens the hearts of lost people and peels back the scales so that blind eyes can see the light of the gospel. So would you pray? And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you today to put your faith, to put all of your trust in him and to give your life to him because he gave his life for you. If you've never been born again, would you do that today? Why not trust Jesus? He loves you. Maybe you could pray a prayer something like this. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ to be my Savior and to go through all the agony of the cross 
for my sins. I believe you died for me, you were buried, and that you rose again so that I could live forever with you. Thank you for forgiving all my sins. I make you the Lord of my life. I give everything to you. Help me to live for you in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer and you made that decision of faith, I want you to let me know. This is my cell phone number. I'd be glad to talk to you about what your next steps as a new believer are. And so uh, you can text that to me and let me know. Let's talk sometime this week so we can help you on your new life found in Jesus Christ.